invite you to grab your Bibles. We're in John's Gospel today. John chapter 12. We'll be in verse 12 in a moment. And welcome again to the beginning of our Holy Week observation. Um, our observation is actually not just a week, but it is two weeks. Um, and I'll explain that in just a moment, because that, that may sound a little extra, because we normally spend focusing upon this day, which is Palm Sunday, and stretch up to Easter Sunday, and then we go on about our business. Uh, we're going to give it a little bit of extra this year, and, and there's a good reason for this. And if you'll think about it, we, we give an awful lot of attention to Christmas, uh, not just in our homes, we, but we do it here. I mean, for you, and, and it's probably typically like this, you start decorating your home in, in November. I know a few of you, I've been past your houses uh, it starts in October, and for a slim few of you, you haven't taken your decorations down, right, from Christmas. But we often start decorating our homes, even our church facilities, in November, and we start our Advent observations on the last Sunday of, of November, and for four weeks and beyond, we begin to focus upon the coming of Christ into this world, and we conclude on Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, four weeks plus dedicated to the birth of Jesus. And yet when you look at the gospel accountings, really only two of the four gospels give any significant detail to the birth of Jesus, Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel. Uh, Mark doesn't really uh, deal with it at all, and you get maybe a verse out of John's gospel. But then when you look at the end of Jesus' life here on earth, all four gospels give great details to the conclusion of his life and ministry. In fact, great space is dedicated in each of the Gospels in regards to Jesus' final days. 24% of Luke's Gospel, 30% of Matthew's Gospel focuses on the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. 40% each of Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel. So we've sort of gotten it out of order here when we spend far more time focusing upon the birth of Jesus and not reflecting upon his death. And so our journey to the cross, to the grave and beyond, begins today, begins right now. And we're going to be con continue to walk through this journey for the next 14 days, and we're going to be walking with Jesus through his week of passion. Now today is Palm Sunday, and so we're going to reflect upon his entry into uh, Jerusalem, marching toward Golgotha. On Thursday, our church is going to gather at 6.30 p.m. for uh, our Holy Thursday gathering. Hopefully you've signed up. There's going to be a meal uh, associated with that. On Thursday, we're going to have the Lord's Supper to follow a little bit of a service. It's more of an intimate affair as we gather together and reflect upon those last hours that Jesus had with his disciples before he entered into the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he was arrested and then some of the most horrific things that could ever befall a human being began to come upon Jesus leading up to his death on Friday. And so on Friday, we're going to reflect on good, what is referred to as Good Friday. We're going to have a Good Friday service. We'll gather back in this room at 6, uh, 6 o'clock, and we're going to have a service that's going to reflect upon the sacrifice, the atoning work of Jesus upon the cross. Yes, we will focus very heavily upon what he endured, his passion, the agony, his suffering, leading up to his burial. And though we may leave here with heavy hearts on Friday and reflect upon all that he did for us as we move into Saturday, we'll come back one week from today 
after that funeral-like service on Friday, we'll come back to celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ did not stay dead. He came back to life. But we're not going to stop there. We're going to keep marching on, and we'll conclude two weeks from today on a post-resurrection Sunday reflection on what now. Now, we're going to encourage you to journey with us each day through a daily devotional. Jennifer, I think I left the book there. Would you hand it to me, sweetheart? We have purchased for you a copy for each household, a devotional book called Mission Accomplished. And uh, today we want you to take time. It it begins today, again, one per household, but to take time, whether you're a household filled up with a whole bunch of family members or maybe just yourself, it's okay. You can journey along together with us corporately. But in your home, each day for 14 days beginning today, are devotions, so you reflect upon the steps of Jesus and follow with Him along the journey. There are opportunities for you to ask questions, even to sing some songs in reflection in times of devotion as a family. Two weeks beginning today, don't miss it. These will be available for you following our service. Pastor BJ will explain explain all of that. Uh, But we want this to be a comprehensive journey for you, for your family, for our church, as we reflect upon the most significant week in the history of mankind, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Today we're going to begin by looking at that very first Sunday before the first Easter Sunday. And it's the day in which Jesus entered into Jerusalem and he does so in grand fashion. And so we begin right now our Holy Week journey and we begin in verse 12 of John chapter 12. So why don't you stand with me? Uh, This is our tradition as we read God's Word together. It's a, a reminder to each of us that this is no ordinary book, but this is God's Holy Word, inerrant and true. You follow along as I read to you John chapter 12, verses 12 through 18. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Pray with me, please. Lord, thank you for your word. And we now pray that you take this word and encourage us. Call us to see you as you presented yourself when you walked into Jerusalem that day. Up to that moment, Lord, you would often suppress the word about who you were until the time. And yet that time came when you entered into Jerusalem. And you threw off the cloak of secrecy and you declared to the world who you were and what you were coming to do. May we see it. In broad fashion today, we pray, and may we respond in kind. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. God bless you. Go ahead and have a seat. This passage of Scripture that we've just read, which is described in each of the Gospels, is referred to as the triumphal entry of Jesus as he walks into Jerusalem. 
Up to this moment, he has been living and ministering primarily far north of Jerusalem, up in the Galilee region. But now he is moving toward the end of his life and ministry. And by the end of the week, he will die a criminal's death cruelly upon the cross. But first, he's going to be received like a conquering hero. And it's really an amazing scene, really, when you look at it. Jesus comes riding in on a donkey. Crowds are lining up the streets, uh, waving palm branches, singing his praises. It's pretty much a victory parade that's befalling in front of them. And it's really a unique moment in the history and ministry of Jesus. Because again, Jesus typically avoided scenes like this. Caution people, you know, don't, don't tell people that I've just healed you. Don't, just keep it to yourself. But here we actually know that he planned it and promoted it. It's sort of like his coming out party into Jerusalem. So, so what gives? What has changed up to this moment? Well, the time for him had come. It's time for him to reveal himself, to let the world know that he has come to accomplish here on earth what he had been called to earth to do, to offer his life and to provide forgiveness for our sins. And so Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. And for those who are observing his entry on that day, it really begged the question, who is this guy really? Who is Jesus and what is he up to? What is he coming to do? And now as we reflect upon it, in hindsight, we find that his triumphal entry into Jerusalem wasn't as mysterious as it first appeared. And uh, for if you mind the details, as we're going to do today and, and look at what John describes here, you're going to learn a lot about Jesus' life, his mission, his character, his nature. And in it, you'll see why Jesus has come into Jerusalem and why he began his journey this way. And right at the beginning of his entry, we see the very first reason why he enters into Jerusalem, and it is this. Jesus came to die. Why he came to Jerusalem is that he came to die. Look again at verse 12. The next day, this large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And then notice verse 13. Here's where the parade begins. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now John's accounting of this triumphal entry is but one of four accountings that you find spread across all of the Gospels. I've, I've mentioned this to you already. And when you read them all together, sort of lining up the pieces, you discover that before Jesus went into Jerusalem, that he first ordered his disciples to go and prepare the way. They took two of his disciples, they were told to go find a donkey at a particular place. He told them exactly where they could find that donkey. And, and once they found that donkey tied up, uh, they would notice that it, it was just as he had said. And they were to bring that donkey to Jesus, and upon which he sat upon it. And there were these huge crowds that had gathered into Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And they had heard that Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And so they'd go and pre prepare for his arrival. Uh, they began to, to cut palm branches. They don't just sell those on the side of the street. They have to go out and, and gather these things together. And so they're preparing for his arrival. And so this grand parade is getting ready to happen. It, it reminds me of the Christmas parade here in Ocala. It boggles the mind. People go out and they set out their, their lawn chairs about two weeks in advance. You ever notice that on, on the boulevard? And so it takes a little bit of preparation to get your spot. Well, that's what's happening here. The people are preparing, gathering the palm branches, and they're beginning to line the streets in anticipation of Jesus coming in. And as he is riding in, 
they begin to do something curious, at least it's curious to us, as other gospel accounts note this, they begin to take off their, clo- their coats, their cloaks, and throw it out onto the road, as others have cut palm branches and spreading those along the road, and the remaining palm branches, they begin to wave at, at Jesus as he passes by. What you see here is a display in ancient Israel, a way in which conquerors and great royalty would have been received. And so they are receiving Jesus uh, with great honor and respect as a conquering hero. Now we do some similar customs today. At a, at a, uh, a wedding, you'll see you know, pa- fl- flower petals dro- dropped along the way of the one who is walking in, or we, we give the red carpet treatment to dignitaries. In fact, just a handful of weeks ago, uh, we had a gold medalist in town, Erin Jackson. She's one of us. Erin um, is a, a resident, uh, has been a resident of Ocala, and she a uh, graduate of Forest High School. They welcomed her back to the high school she attended many years ago. Um, it's crazy to know we have an Olympic athlete who won a gold medal in Winter Olympics here in the sunny state of Florida. You know, that, that's like, you know, the Jamaican bobsled team. It doesn't make sense to us, right? But yet, uh, she is a, uh, an accomplished uh, uh, speed skater on ice, won the 500 meter uh, in, in her skating event. And so when she shows up at Forest High School, they didn't just say, hey, come and give a little bit of an encouragement to the students. They literally, I'm not, this is not figurative, they literally rolled out the red carpet for her. She drives up, gets out of her car, and there is a red carpet for her to follow going into the building. Why do we do that? Because we want to show honor and respect for our conquering heroes, right? We want to, we want to show them that we love them and we appreciate them. Well, that's sort of what they're doing for Jesus. That's how the people in Jerusalem are respecting Jesus and treating him. They're not just receiving him, however, as someone important. They're receiving him in ways that only the long-awaited Messiah would be received, the one who would save them. Check out what they were crying out there in verse 13. They said, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We sang that song today that had the word Hosanna in it. That word Hosanna, it was a, a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew word that means save us please. When they were saying Hosanna, they were saying, save us, save us please. Eventually it became to to mean salvation has come. They may not have known what they were saying or why they were saying it when they shouted it, but they were affirming something very important about Jesus. You know, there's some songs that everyone seems to know, you know, like our national anthem. A couple of weeks back, I had the opportunity to go to, on a Sunday afternoon, I preached here and got in a car a little bit later and went over to Orlando because the United States national men's soccer team was playing in a World Cup uh, qualifying event against Panama. And it was interesting. There was a moment before the, the event took place, everybody was decked out in red, white, and blue and just, you know, having shouts of USA, USA. But then a song began to play. And someone stepped out on the field and began to sing, Oh, say can you see. And suddenly the entire place began with the the following words. You know it. Oh, say can you see by... See, there's some songs in the vernacular, in the traditions of a community that everyone knows. Well, if you had been on the streets of Jerusalem the day that Jesus was coming through and you heard someone say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord... Actually, they would have been singing it. 
you would have kept on singing along with them the following words because the words that were being shouted and sung were part of a famous song that was known in those days found from in psalm 118 verses 25 and 26 it goes like this save us we pray O lord O lord we pray give us success blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord this was a song of the culture a, a psalm that everyone would have known and it's a psalm about the messiah and so when they began to sing it in relation to jesus they were making a grand declaration about him whether they realized it or affirmed it or not but they were saying and declaring save us save our nation they were hoping for someone to come and to save their nation israel and they hoped that he would bring restoration not only for them but victory over the uh, occupying roman armies and and bring independence for them and yet for all of their excitement they missed the whole point of why jesus came to jerusalem see jesus didn't come to save israel he came to save israel's people he came to save them from their sin and of course, one day he's going to return and he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth and that is yet to come. It's sometime in the future, but, but that's going to be a later time. But for now, in this moment there on that Palm Sunday, he came to save people. But in order to save them, he would have to die for them. See, the story of the Bible, not just of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, but the entirety of the scriptures tell us this important fact about who we are and why we are here that god has created us to be known by him to know him to be in a relationship with him and and in the beginning that was the way that it was supposed to be until the first of us adam and eve disobeyed god when they disobeyed god's commands they were separated from god but god also needed to punish them because as much as he is a god of love and we trumpet that quite a bit he is also a a god of deep character of justice and righteousness and his justice cried out against their disobedience and our disobedience. And the consequence of their sin, the penalty of their sin, is that they must die. We must die. Unfortunately, God himself provided the only sacrifice that could atone for our sins, our, our disobedience against him. He sent his son Jesus to die in our place. As Jesus himself would declare earlier in John's gospel, you know this, John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life now we often stop right there because we know that jesus perished so we we wouldn't have to perish we wouldn't have to die but it keeps on going in verse 17 of john 3 it says for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him so they were crying out save us please salvation is here but Jesus, by coming into Jerusalem and accepting their praise that he would be their Savior, knew something in that moment that they did not know, that in order for them to be saved, he would not be. He would lay down his life. Jesus perished. He died that we might be saved. So Jesus came to die. He willingly rode into Jerusalem, entered in there, knowing that he would be falsely accused and unjustly tried and brutally beaten and crucified in such a gruesome fashion he knew all of this and yet he came because he knew that he had to in order to save people he did this to be our savior to die for our sin yours and mine but can i ask you did he die for you has he saved you 
If, you, if, if not, or if you're not quite sure, before we depart here, you're going to have an opportunity yourself to say yes to Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. Now, there's another reason why Jesus entered in Jerusalem. Yes, he came to die, but he also came to rule. Again, the people cried out to him there in verse 13, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But then they added this tagline, Even the King of Israel. Verse 14, notice that it says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. So it's an interesting scene here. You would think if we were writing the story that we would have chosen a different animal, but Jesus gets on this donkey, sits on it, while you and I may have chosen a stallion, you know, a, a magnificent beast for him to, to come in, or maybe rolling in on a chariot. Instead, he comes in on a donkey. Now, we may try to explain that and say, well, Jesus is humble, so this is a humble way for him to come in on a donkey, right? But that's probably because you and I see a donkey in a different way than the Jews did. We see a donkey and think, well, that's just a beast of burden. It's just a common animal. That's not a, a king's mount. But actually, and the Jews would have seen it this way, that the donkey was a royal animal for Jewish monarchs, especially in peacetime. Only in times of war would a king get upon the back of a, of a steed because that's an animal that you would use in fighting a war. But Jesus is riding an animal that would be, would be ridden by a king when there was no war, in times of peace, in times of victory. And so Jesus coming in on this donkey is deliberately riding into Jerusalem in a deliberate manner, in a royal manner. And the people are responding in kind. You know when they were waving those palm branches? That's how ancient people would often respond to kings when they came back in victory in, as they conquered. And so Jesus riding in on this donkey is by no accident. He is making a declaration about himself. And remember, he chose this. He sent his disciples to, to go find this animal. He was coming in making a deliberate statement that he is king, that he is sovereign, that he and he alone came to rule. And that as sovereign Lord, he rules over all things and over everyone. The Apostle Paul would describe Jesus this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6. He said, he who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. What does it mean for Jesus to be ruler, to be King of kings and Lord of lords? Well, it means that he possesses supreme authority. It means that he is the highest power. He is the, the sovereign Lord. He has absolute control. I know we who live here in the United States, you know, we, we threw off the shackles of, of royalty a long time ago. Uh, you know, the, the, the best we'll get to, and the closest that we'll get to royalty is, uh, you know, watching uh, some royal wedding from across the pond, right? We, we, that's, that's just something for our curiosity. But we like our freedom. We don't want a king over us. We like our independence. We certainly don't want anyone who has absolute authority over us like the kings of old. And yet that is exactly who Jesus is and what he is wanting to be. Jesus is king. He is Lord, king of kings and Lord of lords. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, he is the supreme authority over all things. And again, you may not like that and you may push against that, but guess what? One day you're going to have to acknowledge it. Whether you do so in this life or the life that is to come, as Paul would tell us in Philippians chapter 2, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is Lord, which means He is ruler. 
and he came to rule. So what does that mean for you and for me? <coughs> what does it mean for Jesus to rule you? It means that he is the supreme ruler of your life. That means that he is Lord. Let me describe it this way. Yesterday, uh, my youngest child, Meredith, turned 15 years of age. All right? We're not going to sing happy birthday to her, but you can do so later, all right? Embarrass her uh, on your own time. Um, but here's the thing. For every time she's ever gone anywhere, someone has driven her to where she's gone, right? I mean, somebody drove her to, to, to the church over the weekend. Uh, every morning I get up, I take her to school, drive her to school. I go and pick her up and drive her back home. But tomorrow, something happens that's different. Tomorrow, uh, she gets her driver's permit, right? And when that happens, you know, up to this moment, man, I've been the guy with my hands on the wheel and my foot on the gas, and when necessary, my foot on the brake, right? Steering her life and taking her wherever. I've been her personal chauffeur. But the moment that she has that driver's permit in hand, I can take the keys out of my pocket and hand them to her, and she gets into the driver's seat, puts her hands on the steering wheel, I get in the other side, and I buckle up, <laughs> right? And suddenly, she has the ability to direct where we're going. I'm not in control anymore. She's in control. She decides where we're going. She decides how fast or how slow or how safely we get to where we're going, right? And so that's really a picture of what it means for Jesus to be in control, to be Lord, to rule over us. Before you come to know Christ, you are in the driver's seat. You've got your hands on the steering wheel. You've got your foot on the brake or the gas. You decide where you're going. But when you surrender to Christ and His Lordship and His rule in your life, you get out of the driver's seat, you move over to the passenger seat or, or into the back seat, and you say, here you go, Jesus, you take it. You're, you're in control. Your hand's on the wheel, your foot on the gas, your foot on the brake. Not me in control, not me deciding where we're going. It is on you. That's what it means for Jesus to rule. So why did Jesus come to earth and to enter into Jerusalem? He came to be Lord, to be the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and He came to rule us, us submitting to His authority. Now listen, that's not the only reasons why He has come. There's a, a third thing that I would say to you is that He came as promised. That's a point that John wanted to note there. Look, look again in verse 14. We've already read this, but it says that Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. But note this. He found a young donkey, sat on it, just as it is written. And then he quotes an Old Testament passage. Verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's coat. Now this is probably missed by most people when all of this was unfolding as Jesus is coming in. But John is reminding us here that his, Jesus is coming while riding on the back of a donkey was the fulfillment of a prophecy. And it was a prophecy that was made prominently by the prophet Zechariah, recorded in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And here, let me just read it to you. Here's how it goes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation. Is he humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey? Now, you need to know that this prophecy was declared, uttered 480 years before Jesus was born. 
480 years before anybody knew that there was going to be somebody by the name of Jesus, this was uttered by one of the Old Testament prophets. And now, 500 years later, Jesus is fulfilling it because Jesus was who he said he was. God promised that this would happen, and God is a a, a one who keeps his promise. And so Jesus came because he was promised. But that was not just a one-off prophecy. I mean, anybody could have figured that out and, and, you know, sort of manipulated to say that is me. In fact, this wasn't the only prophecy about Jesus, but promise after promise after promise was made in the Old Testament about the coming of a Messiah. And as we now look into the New Testament, we discover that Jesus is the fulfillment of every single one of those prophecies. Now listen, I, I realize that there are a lot of belief systems out there, a lot of religions out there all claiming to be the one. Each of them saying, we're the way, that we're, we're the truth. And, but I'm telling you, I've, uh, as I've spent many years in this subject, I've, I've studied it, and many far greater in knowledge than me have done so. None of these other religions and what they have to offer as evidence to support their faith, none of them compare to the evidence and the evidences that support the Christian faith. The single greatest evidence that Jesus is true, that He is God, that He is Lord, that He is the way of salvation, is the resurrection Himself. We'll get into that in the next week or so. But, but one of the greatest evidences is what is referred to here in this passage of Scripture, and that is fulfilled prophecies. And if I could give you a little perspective on, the, on Bible prophecy, I mean, most people think when it comes to Bible prophecy, they think of the end times, Armageddon, but so much of prophecy was uttered about the coming of the Messiah, many of them pointing specifically to him. And I've shared this truth with you before, this example, but it's, it's meant so much to me. There was a professor, is a professor by the name of Peter Stoner. He is a mathematics professor who is also a believer. And he said, let's just take eight Old Testament prophecies that we know were fulfilled in Jesus, specific prophecies about the Messiah. And, and here are the ones that he named. That he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would be born to a virgin, that he would be from the lineage of David, that it, he would have a messenger sent ahead of him to herald his coming. That was John the Baptist. That he would ride a donkey, that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, that he would have people cast lots for his clothing and have his hands and feet pierced. And so this mathematician took the odds of all eight of these things happening, uh, being fulfilled by one person, and he determined that it would be one in ten to the 21st power, which I know that's beyond our ability to comprehend, so he described it like this. To illustrate that number, he said, first blanket the entire earth landmass with silver dollars 120 feet tall. Second, specifically mark just one, only one, of those dollars and randomly bury it somewhere on the earth. Third, ask a person to travel the earth and select the marked dollar while blindfolded from trillions of other dollars. And if that happened, that would tell you the odds of one person fulfilling all eight of those prophecies. It's an amazing thing. That's just for eight prophecies, but there are 53 more specific prophecies about the Messiah. Specific Jesus fulfilled every single one. That, that's no coincidence. That's evidence that Jesus came and he came as promised. Isn't that good to know? Here's the fourth and final truth I want to share with you today. One more reason why Jesus came to Jerusalem. He came as God. It's hard to see here in, in the initial reading of this text. 
And before I get to, to that, I, I do want you to notice how all of this was confusing to the disciples, so they didn't understand this at first, so it's okay if you didn't read this at first, because they're not quite sure to make, what to make of all of this. Verse 16 says that his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So everything was happening so fast, I mean, it's just all fuzzy to them in, in, the, in, the, in the moment. But it became very clear after Jesus' death, burial, resurrection, and his ascension. And these disciples, they, they, they weren't the only ones missing out on what was being displayed here and the point of it all and who Jesus was because the crowd was right there, right after them. Look at verse 17. It says, The crowd that had been with him when he called out Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So all, all this hubbub about Jesus coming into the city of Jerusalem, this over oh, a single little itty-bitty miracle, wasn't a tiny little bitty miracle. So there was some guy that Jesus reportedly had raised from the dead, and he wasn't just a guy who had passed out for about 30 minutes and come back to life. This was a guy who had been dead so long they had to bury him because he was going to start to stink. And it wasn't some little miracle, it was a huge deal. Jesus, of course, had raised others from the dead, the widow's son, Jairus' daughter. But again, Lazarus had been, bit, been dead for four days when Jesus raised him. Nearby Bethany, if you back up a little bit, you begin to read about the story of Bethany and how Lazarus had been placed in the tomb, body already starting to decompose, and Jesus cried out to him, Lazarus, come out. And guess what Lazarus did? He came out. Now here in verse 18, John calls it a sign. That's important because if you're familiar with the reading of John's gospel, there are seven signs in John's gospel that John highlights. These are seven miracles. In John chapter 2, we get the first one, which Jesus turns the water into wine. In John chapter 4, he's healing an official son. And John chapter 5, the sign was the healing at the pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 6, it is Jesus feeding the 5,000. Also in John chapter 6 is when Jesus walked on water. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man who was born blind, so he was uh, 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 blind from birth. And then in John chapter 11, the previous chapter, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. If these were the miraculous signs that Jesus had performed, I might have used the point, well, Jesus came with power. But Jesus' raising of Lazarus wouldn't be the last miracle of this book, of his life. One week later, from this day, one week after Palm Sunday, we're going to see how Jesus doubled down on the sign of raising Lazarus from the dead because Jesus himself will have died and raises himself by the power of God from the grave. Which tells us that Jesus didn't just come into Jerusalem with power, he came as God. As I've already mentioned, there's no greater proof that Jesus was and is God than His resurrection. It's why John would write these words in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, declaring that all of Christianity hinges upon the resurrection. John wrote this in verse 12, 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can you, you, some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. 
And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting or lying about God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those uh, also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That means if you have died, you stay dead and there is nothing beyond. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all of people most to be pitied. You know, John or Paul doesn't end there because in the, the very next verse, verse 20, he says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who had fallen asleep. You know why Paul said that? Because Paul himself saw the resurrected Christ. He knew Jesus had died. He knew the people that had accused him and had tried him. He knew the ones that had led to the circumstances being that he would be falsely tried and and wrongly accused and, 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 and charged with the crime and ultimately died dead in the grave. We have no record of the fact that John that, that Paul saw Jesus dead, but we can pretty much assume that he saw him. He would have been there along with the rest of the Pharisees. And if he hadn't been there himself, he would have known those who had seen it. And yet, Paul himself had his own experience. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he himself saw the resurrected Christ. And all of this reminds us that Jesus is God. And the resurrection of Jesus is the grand exclamation point of history, pointing to that fact being true. This is why Jesus came in Jerusalem. He came to die. But has he died for you? Jesus came to rule. But does he rule you? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? He came as promised, but do you believe the word about him? He came as God. But is he your God? Today, this day, you can believe in him, you can trust him, and he can be your Savior And he can be your king. But don't just wave a palm frond at him. Surrender all to him. Believe in Jesus and repent and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, as this journey begins for us, As believers in you, the vast majority of us Christians in this room, we've heard these stories before. We've we've followed your journey before in our personal time or in a Bible study class from the pulpit. We've seen these stories. We've read about them. And Lord, I'm praying that we have fresh eyes to see what all of this journey meant. And Lord, for those of us who've been saved because you died for us. We see you not only as Savior, but as Lord. You are our King. You are our Lord. And we see the telling of the stories and affirmation of the prophecies that were made of you a long, long time ago, all of them pointing the fact that you are Messiah, but you are also God, worthy to be followed, worthy of praise. 
Lord, may this fact not be something that we have encountered in the past and get over, but that we continue to marvel over the King that has come into Jerusalem. May it impact who we are and how we live our lives, knowing all that you have done for us. May we surrender our lives yet again and pursue you as the conquering hero that you are. But Lord, I also pray for those who are gathered in this room or perhaps watching us by video online, that if any of them could not say, yes, Jesus is my Savior, He's died for me, He is my Lord, He is my ruler. Lord, I pray that today be the day that they recognize that Your Word is true and that You have kept Your Word. You have kept the Word that You have promised and that You, Jesus, You are God that they believe in what you did for them and dying for them, being buried and coming back to life, that that gospel is a gospel by which can save them. In order that there be someone here today, I pray even now that the Holy Spirit of God be speaking strongly into their spirit, awakening them to the fact that they desperately need your forgiveness, your salvation today. And that this day be the day that they turn from their sin and turn from being in control of their lives and yield control to you, submitting to you as Savior and Lord. This we pray and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.